because the mama bear principle comes out. <clears throat> I've seen a few videos of, um, of bears that, that are, uh, feel threatened. And, and these videos are usually cut short. I wish I could show you one. They're usually cut short um, because the person stops filming and starts surviving uh, as the bear moves faster than you thought and he closes the distance. You thought there was a lot more distance between you and the bear and there wasn't. And uh, you're about to die because that, that charging hundreds and hundreds of pounds of anger and rage is coming at you. Um, when we were at camp one year, um, the first year, uh, we saw more bears that year than ever again up in Colorado. And um, black bears. And the kids running, I've told you this before, running before camp got started, we had some really motivated early, early risers that go on a run, uh, getting ready for track in the, in the fall. Um, they crossed, our, our, some of our kids crossed a bear's path where um, they saw cubs on one side and then they were on the path that they were running. And unfortunately, mama was on the other side. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a recipe for, um, for, <laughs> for death. And uh, thankfully, there was no cursing or mocking of prophets so that, um, that the bear didn't take much of an interest. She, but they were already out of the area jogging through by the time the bear would have even perceived a threat, it seems. So nothing happened, but they did notice. Uh, the kids came back and noticed that there was that problem. And um, that mama bear image is an amazing thing. When you see that grizzly bear turn 50 feet or 100 feet into... Uh, 1.4 seconds or whatever it is, <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and it's so subtle that you just don't see it coming. All of a sudden, she's here, and, um, and you, if you haven't already got the car in gear, you're, you're too late, and then if you're on foot, pray that bear is a Christian, you know, <laughs> as the old joke goes, you know, the old joke about the bear. Lord, just let this bear be a Christian. And then the bear slaps him down and then steps on his back with a foot. And then he kneels down, folds his hands and says, Father, for this meal we're about to receive. We're (laughs) grateful. The mama bear principle comes out in all of us, the protection of our children when we perceive a threat to them. And I want to talk about the rational side of this. I want to talk about the the principles that are being transgressed that we're all like, that's wrong. No, get out of my house. Get away. There, there's a, an emotional side, and that's helpful uh, when, it, when you need it, but not until we've thought. And I think you think before you feel. I think that's the way God designed it. He gave us the Bible as a book. And so my challenge to you is there are principles of God's design and governance and his delegated authority and, and those, and what God told us as our mission for training children, it, that's why you've got the mama bear emotional vitriolic response when they start saying, well, the children don't belong to their parents, they, they belong to the state. And we can't, you're talking about an education now, the, the people are saying, as they say, the quiet part out loud, and various education talking heads are saying things like, we just can't allow the parents to determine what the curriculum is that we teach them in the school. Because, let's see, one uh, leftist said this last week, um, let me see if I can quote her properly, or at least paraphrase. She says that, um, I have a master's degree. What do these parents have? They don't have any master's degrees. They don't know what the children need. They want us to teach what they want, but we need to teach what the state needs them to have. 
What, what, and that, who determines that? Where does that come from? And so here's, what, here's where we are in education. It's the per- perfect example, the most important example, I think, of the problem of worldview and secularism versus a theistic worldview. And I, just very carefully, we're not calling for the- theocracy. We are not calling for uh, uh, the, the church elders to become the town elders and then to hold life and death over people like uh, in Geneva with microcervatus and the killing of a man who was uh, heretical in his views and killing him for his heresy. And, and this is one of the great blights on the Reformation with John Calvin is, is the, the elders are theocratic and they're administering what they see as, as righteous government. And, and that's a big, it's the only boo-boo we know of in the Reformation where this happened. Um, well, the main one, I should say, the, the big one that's, an, that's kind of an embarrassment. But we're not calling for theocracy. We're calling for the preservation of conscience. We're calling for the recognition of divine institution one, as we call it, or the responsible, volitional relationship between you and God, that all your decisions fall under that relationship. And the respect of conscience in that. And, and that's, that's the basis for government in this country and its founding. And part of our argument constitutionally is once we've lost that, we've lost the basis and the legitimate expression of government because it's in the document. And that was the decision that the forefathers made when they established the document. And Jefferson was wrong about this. He said you shouldn't have future generations governed by dead people. But that was one of his theories, is that this should be more amendable, more, more flexible, more changeable. It was his theory because he misunderstood depravity. And there were all kinds of philosophical problems in Jefferson's head. But he stood against the overwhelming tide of the constitutionalists who said, no, we're going to write this and it's going to be hard to fix. It's going to be hard to change. So once you've done that, once you've gone against the very underpinnings of the document, there is the question in Romans 13 of the expression of this government. And this is where one of the areas. We will resist the, uh, uh, the incursion of any force to the destruction of our children. We will stand at the door and fight because that's a violation of God's design. And we'll trust in the Lord to fight, for our, fight our battles for us, but we won't feed our kids to Baal. We will say to Nebuchadnezzar, I don't have to bow down. And we we don't have to give you an answer concerning this. And our God may deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we'll still not bow down to your idol. And so that's the problem. It's called interposition. There are mediate authorities that lead up to God. And when when, when the lower authority says disobey him, you disregard that and you obey God. And so this is the mama bear principle. And it's, it's, I'm not saying this to stir you up and get you all riled up first hour. Uh, unless you're asleep and you have no idea. The more woke the culture goes, the more of a slumber we find ourselves in in rebellion against God. And um, what I'm talking about will be perceived as sedition. But I'm actually insisting on our Constitution. I'm, I'm against the seditionists. I'm against the corruption of the protections of conscience in our, in our government. And so, so I think that, that this is a, a sacred thing. It's a God-given authority God has placed on parents to train their children. And I regret that we were callous and kind of, we were a little bit optimistic about people 
and what they could accomplish. And we gave, delegated this too much to the government to train the children. And, and now we have a secular state that um, the numbers are crazy. Barna and others will tell you that um, the people in the United States and this culture to which we belong who have what we would call a biblical worldview, who think in terms of the uh, inerrant scriptures and would make their decisions not on their feelings or cultural norms or popular opinion, but on what God's word says. We're talking between 2 and 6% of the population, something like that. Saying they're Christian doesn't, doesn't get you there. The, 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 are you biblical? Do you think according to what God said, the way he said it? And uh, we believe here that that one label has been placed on that to uh, as synonymous with biblical as dispensational. In other words, we're not proposing theocracy. We're not theonomists. We don't think that the government should, uh, should try to co-opt God's covenant relationship with national Israel at Sinai and sort of somehow instantiate that so that you're commanding people to worship Yahweh. We don't, we, Christians don't believe that. It's not the way Jesus came to, to make disciples. You don't do it governmentally. You, the government of Christ is coming on earth, and that is a political kingdom and all that, but, but that's not our, our mission. You can't force it, and that's the, that's the, the historic um, project of the Roman system in part is we're going to coerce and use government force uh, to, to bring conversion. It's not a biblical norm because we're not in Israel and Jesus, or I should say God, Yahweh, is not the sovereign politically of our country. He didn't set us up that way. That's not how it works. And so it's a, it's a thorny thing. But what he should be is the Lord of all of our hearts, and that's the beauty of our country. We used to be that way. We had all one Lord, and our walk with him determined our practices with our children, with our uh, body politic. So on those opening remarks, let's look at what God says about parents and children. It's such an important topic, you see, because it's an area of government, and we need to assert our rights. But we need to assert our rights because they are responsibilities. Let me, let me put the cookies on a little bit lower shelf. You can't delegate to the government the training of your kids because the popular culture doesn't know what your mission is. They don't know what you're training them for. You can't just stick them in a school and say that's where they're going to be educated. You can't say education and miss edification and miss sanctification because you're going to dual format them. You're all, we all are. We all grew up dual formatted. If you grew up in the Word... If you grew up in the Word and in the school, then you grew up learning all the topics that are the real stuff. And then at church, you learned all the stories and the theology stuff that's all spiritual. And you got put into two boxes, and your brain struggles to see which one of those boxes I'm, I'm dealing with. Oh, that's church stuff. We'll talk to church talk. Well, this is biology and geology and physics and astronomy and, and literature and civics and ethics and those things that we can teach that are secular. And, and you, we have to break that down because the decisions you make and how you treat God's creation are divine institution one, volitional moves of worship or not toward God. It's how you're relating to God. 
the, the great hurdle for most children in school is mathematics. The discipline necessary to do the work of mathematics. It's an unnatural act for a lot of people. Some of you and some of us, it came a little more naturally. To others, it's hard to make yourself do that constant rational reasoning process. Boy, does it help if you have a biblical worldview to say this order and structure that exists because God is this reasoning process that we're summarizing with numbers and symbols. This is a reflection of the order in the nature of our creator. Mathematics should always be worship. It really should. But I know that's crazy. That's radical. That's not how people think. But that's the idea of divine institution three of parents and children is Deuteronomy 6. All through life, you're integrating the worship of God in every aspect of life. Let's, let's open the Bible to Deuteronomy 6 for a second and see what, I'm, what I mean. Y'all know Deuteronomy 6. And I know very much I'm preaching to the choir. I'm not uh, speaking in order to bring anybody to my side or something. Really, I think I'm considering my audience. What I'm seeking to do here is equip you to think it through. Why do we say no village for me? No UN declaration on the rights of a child. No, the children don't belong to the state. By God's design, if you make it, you own it. That's Genesis chapter 1. He made everything. He owns everything. It's yours to do with as, uh, as you see fit if you're the creator of it. Well, under God, the creature is always responsible to God to do as God sees fit. And that's divine institution one, worship of God. But you made your kids. And I mean, God used you to make kids. So you're responsible to God in a way that no one else in the world is for how you train them. And yes, the state has to get involved tragically because of sin, because of crime, because of the abuse and the transgression against children at the hands of parents. And Jesus talks about the millstone around the neck into the, into the ocean with you. Because of sin and the, the destruction of the human race, we have human government. Genesis 9. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that the government sets the agenda for what we're doing in training the children. The government steps in when there is a, a, a transgression. And now we've redefined transgression. See, speech is now violence. If you say the truth, that's a man, that's a woman, that's violence. You've committed a violent act in the new, new popular um, uh, morality of our time. And, and so we've got to think. We have to think clearly. In Genesis chapter 6, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you have God's pattern, God's plan, his blueprint for national worship of him in, in a constant rapport at a national basis in this second telling or second giving, if you will, of the law to the children of the Exodus generation on the plains of Moab. O Israel, verse 3 of Deuteronomy 6, you should listen and be careful to do what he's commanding them, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. That means that God wants to prosper and bless them as they walk with him according to the uh, covenant that's being described here between God and his people. The Mosaic covenant, we call it. In verse 4, Hear, O Israel, most of, the most uh, significant or, or central verse of the Old Testament. 
The Lord is our God, the Lord only. The Lord is one, could be also translated the Lord alone. There's no one like him, he's the only God. And then you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's divine institution number one. That's you and God. That's the relationship you have. That's your choice. He doesn't say the way he says it. It's, it's presented as binding on them. But the question is, did they do it? The answer is no. They were kicked out of the land for idolatry. But he told them to love him. And so this is volition. This is the ability to make a choice. It's your choice. But God tells you what the right choice is. You can't choose, and that's the the problem of legislation in our culture. The culture wants to say, no, that's not the right choice. The right choice is what we say it is. You don't get to to decide that. We don't decide what the morality is. We decide whether we'll adjust to it. And that's why God gave us his word. That's revelation. He told us the answer. Now you get to say, well, um, knows right answer when told is what we do with revelation, with what God has said. But anyway... They need to choose to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That's an interesting verse. Just let that sink in. You have to have it in you. These words I'm telling you have to be on your heart. And then you have the multi-generational impact. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. Shall walk, uh, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. When you're in your house or out of your house, that means all the time. When you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, that's the bookends of your day. That's all your consciousness. And there's your two merisms, two ways, poetically, if you will, or, or literarily of saying your whole life is covered with these words of God and God's expectations. And the revelation of God is saturating your life. And you're telling your kids. Now, what's been done with this is we said, oh, that's the church box. That Deuteronomy 6, 7 is talking about, you know, when you're, when you're at church or if you're having devotion time or, you know, the God stuff. But we've got the other important stuff like mathematics and like biology and, and geology and astronomy and, and all that, all, the, all the, the hard sciences. And then whatever that soft science stuff is and, and, and literature and expression and grammar, all that stuff is, that's all secular. But Deuteronomy 6 is talking about taking them to church. But it doesn't say that. It says you live in a church in that frame. That box just absorbed, absorbed everything. And you adopt a biblical worldview about all matters, about all topics. And that is, boy, does, if you love God, then you love learning. You love education. Because now I'm learning about him in other ways. And it's a beautiful vertical uh, integration of God into everything that you're doing. And, and it, I don't mean in a goofy way. I mean, the more you're attuned to God's word, the more you know how this works. Does God is a trinity? Does he want me to make, to triple, to triple this batch of cookies I'm going to make? Because he's, in, no, that's stupid, right? But he does want you to see how you can use that talent, baking cookies, to express his love and advance his interest in sharing Christ with others. And so it's not so much the recipe you, you use. Of course, we all know it should have some chocolate somehow. But that's just the common sense. But, but, the, but the, the goal is not, did my recipe reflect the perfection of the Trinity? The goal is, did, did whatever I have, did I use it in service to him to advance his interest? And don't get goofy about that. Well, I had some cookies, and I could have given them to my kids, but, but we need to be a, a gospel mission, so we've got to go find someone to give these cookies to. Don't be foolish. 
But the way to think about life is in terms of the objectives God's given us. And, and that settles things, you know. Which car should I buy? Whichever one gets you to do the things you need to do so that you can work hard with your hands, have something to share with those who are in need. It could give you some ability to go share Jesus Christ on occasion as you can. It gives you the ability to be in every aspect of your life a representative of your Savior. Do that. Think of it that way. That blows some people's minds. Like, I never thought of a car as a means to do that. I thought of it as something that I liked and wanted because I liked the way it looked. Well, that's fine, but it's all secondary. It's a distant second to what we're doing. So anyway, the, the point that we're trying to make here is that every aspect of your life, Deuteronomy 6, is supposed to be characterized by God's Word, and you're supposed to integrate that into all the comings and goings of your day. And that cannot be done in a secularized culture that says there's a separation of church and state. The government and the schools are united. The school is an, ex, an adjunct of the state. It's a nonprofit. Well, does that make it the state? No, but we'll use tax money. So it's established. So, okay, so it is the state. And since there's separation of church and state, we have to have the separation of God from the school. And that's the rationale that won in the 20th century. And um, the fact that that, is, that perspective kind of prevailed as the popular norm, the fact that that's how it worked out, means we already were done. The, the decision the government made and, and ruled just excel, accelerated the process. We were already baked and, and completely mis, misappropriated in the 60s by the time that decision was made. And... Um, the acceleration is what we've lived, what I've lived through, the, the time of acceleration of this problem. And I don't, I'm not here to diagnose societal ills. I'm here to say that um, we made a huge mistake when we delegated the training of our children to the state and didn't watch it closely and didn't say, wait, no way, you can't, you can't do this. Government equals school equals secularized. All right. There are two simple roles in Deuteronomy, or in, in Divine Institution 3, and uh, parents and children in Ephesians 6. Two simple roles. The first is 6 1, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. And then Paul spends verses uh, 2 and uh, well, 1b and then 2 and 3 to give the reasons, rationales, thought process why you would obey your parents, as we've seen. Two roles. Parents are to set conditions by not provoking them to anger and to train them. These are the two roles that Paul summarizes, the two ways of thinking about parents and children. Not to assert your dominance, that's not your mission. Not to have a servant out of your child, that's not your mission. So we said not to live vicariously through them, that's not what we're doing. See, God tells you, drive, he tells you where you're going, and then you get in the car and you go and you know your mission because he tells you where you're headed. He doesn't say, get in the car, sit down, put on your seatbelt, close the door, turn on the, start, start the car with the ignition, put the car into park, check your rearview mirror. He doesn't tell you that. He says, go over there, drive over in, uh, to, this, to this place, go to the Good News Club. And then you do all the things you need to do to do that. The mission is to train the kids. And we'll get into some specifics about that. Obedience is always a choice. Beloved, obedience of God is always a choice. It is never inherently that if I, if I am a Christian, I will 
I will, by definition, obey what God said. It's not true. It doesn't work that way. Obedience is always a choice. Now, again, the choice of, of the de- deciding what's the right choice to make, that's for God to say. That's called morality. That's his righteousness reflected in his legislation and what he said. And that's why, again, revelation. He tells you what the right answer is. Do you choose to do it? That's the deal. That's always the deal with volition. It's always a choice. Every choice is the exercise of that capacity of divine institution one, me and God, my relationship with him through my choice. And that's why you have, I contend, that's why you have the ability to choose because God wants you to walk with him. He wants a real relationship with you on the basis of his revelation and your reception of that revelation. And you choose. I want him. You choose to trust him. It's a cho- it, there's a volitional component in faith. And I'm not saying that man is sovereign over God or something. I'm saying God sovereignly designed us to relate to him as real responsible agents. And it's the first thing we find in God's creation of man. Every choice is the exercise of this, what does God think, what am I responsible for? The child in Ephesians 6.1 has the authority over himself to make the choice whether to obey. In your culture, there's a reflection of this. There is a reflection of this in the broken, godless, demonic culture we live in. And that's just on, on Sesame Street, right? I mean, there's a, there's a reflection of this in the only remaining morality and in, in sexual conduct is consent. The concept of consent is now under attack because of the lowering of expectations about a child capability of consent. The way they're doing that is they're attacking with the kids in the school and they're saying they can choose mutilation at a young age in the school and the government can, can allow that and don't tell the parents and all that. But that's an attack on consent, on the ability to make a choice. What I'm saying is that in your culture, you still have non-consensual contact and that area is bad. The culture still says that's bad. Praise God. We're still recognizing volition that people are, have agency and they're responsible for their choice. And so the, the concept of rape is the violation of consent. It's the violation of DI1. And it's very similar. It's gross. It's, it's unthinkable. It's horrific. It's destructive of all, and all that it is. But it's very similar to that little child not yet restraining his lust and his desire for power who grabs the other child and pulls him and says, you come over here and you do what I said. We're going to play like I want to play. Well, he's violating the other child's volition. He's going to force him physically because he's bigger or just more vicious. He's going to force that other child to, to do what he wants instead of saying, let's choose to do this. Would you come? No, you don't want to. Well, well let's make a deal. I'll play your game if you play my game. But we're working with that volition, with consent. And so what I'm saying is every time God puts a command out there, it's for the individual to choose to obey. And when God says the children obey your parents, the kids have the power to choose yes or no. They don't have the power, as you know, to decide what is the outcome of that choice, what is the consequence, but they have the choice. And that's, that's really important to understand because the first thing Paul says in Ephesians 6, 1, children obey your parents, is very instructive for parents to understand what we're dealing with. 
Paul doesn't say, inasmuch as parents will force their children to obey, he says, children, you are responsible in the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in the Lord to obey your parents. It's all flowing from Ephesians 5.18 to be filled by the Spirit. So the child has this much authority. I can choose yes or no with my body. When, how many times have parents thought in the culture and the age we live in, it would be nice to have some sort of remote control to help them make good choices, right? We joke about this. Um, my dog knows to stay in the yard because he starts hearing a beep if he gets a little bit too far from the house, and that beep gets a little bit louder, and eventually he gets a correction, and then he comes back in the yard. Wow, wouldn't that be helpful for children if you had a way to help them not make the wrong choice, but to make the right choice. A little beep, 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 beep. And then finally, oh, and then they don't know. But, but we think this way. We want the kids on a remote control because we're struggling with the fact that God gave them this capacity to choose. And God works with it and deals with it and says, y'all do this and there's consequences if you don't. And that's how parenting works. And acknowledging that at a young age, at the youngest age, is so, I think it's so important. You're after training that volition. You're training that capacity to choose. And you're showing the, the, the benefits and of, of, of righteous choices and the consequences for bad choices. That's all part of this moral formation we have to, to build with, with as parents. But kids have that authority. When you think of children and the question of authority, you think people under authority. But you need to recognize that divine institution one, you and God, is there with them at the very earliest. And motivational theories... Um, Paul gives three rationales. And I'm saying that we have our secular motivational theories. Let's don't worry about those. But by review, it's the right thing to do in 6.1. Obey your parents, it's right. It's the Ten Commandments in 6.2. It's the first commandment with a promise. Obey your honor your father and mother, that's 6.2. And then in that second point, that it's a relationship with God, he, God wants you to, so you do it to please him, is that, that it'll go well with you and you live long on the earth. There's the desirable outcome. Oh, that's why I'll obey my parents, because if I don't, I don't get that good outcome. And so all three of these are important factors in human motivation, I think, from a biblical frame. I don't need a psychologist to tell me. I don't need a psychologist to tell me that, um, that if you ring a bell, the dog will salivate. I, great. Work that. Y'all go research that. But I've got Paul telling me that I could be motivated by a moral sense that I want to do the right thing because it's the right thing, 6-1. That a relationship with God requires me to obey what he's told me, and that's the way God structured the Ten Commandments and the walk in righteousness in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16. And then I want the good thing that happens. I am motivated by consequence. And all of that is faith. Do I believe there's a bad outcome? Do I believe uh, disobedience of my parents will cause a shortened life? Do I believe that? And that's a, it's a faith challenge. So these are, these are the ways that God structures the training of children to make good choices. And parents, you're given sort of the curriculum in Deuteronomy, or sorry, Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, right there. So the parents set conditions, they're commanded and so required to obey the command, train their kids. Divine institution one, or my relationship with God, my capacity to choose, is evident when God commands parents not to provoke their kids to anger. Don't provoke them, but bring them up, but raise them in the, uh, as we'll see, the training and the uh, admonition of the Lord. Don't provoke them is a command God issues. Now I am responsible to God for whether I obey that command. See, what we'll do is we'll think about me and the kid. 
but I want to provoke him or whatever, whatever the thing is. But it's really about you and God. How do you treat this child for God's sake? And that's back to marriage in chapter uh, 5, verses uh, 19. Um, sorry, verses 22 through 33. It's, it's all commands under the big command to be filled by the Spirit. So parents are required to obey the command to train their kids. And this is a volitional act for the parents. Obviously, you can see that. Right there, any government action that comes in and tries to interdict in that is stepping on God's institution of family because God told the parents to do this. Now, he didn't say you couldn't use helpers. And that's my view of education is that I have lots of people that help me do what I am doing. They're not doing it. They're doing what they're doing, but they're, what they're doing is helping me do what I'm doing. It's a delegation. And I think that was Benjamin Rush's idea. I think that's where we were as a culture when we started this idea of government-funded public school. We were seeking to just delegate to people those tasks and specialize in it and all the value and wonder and greatness that comes from good, uh, talented, gifted teachers. The goal was that you had some trusted Christian people you could delegate to help you do the thing that God has called you to do. And so... When you see God establishing this is my responsibility, you don't want someone to take that away from you. And they can't, really. They can't take it away from you and, and get done what God wants to do. This act of training, in, I contend, in verse 4, Ephesians 6, is unique. It's a unique uh, challenge because it's the one that equips children to make right choices and so fulfill DI1. Divine Institution 1, me and God, is equipped by parents with their relationship with God, doing what God said with their kids. It's the only one of these institutions like that. I can set conditions as a husband. My wife can set conditions as a wife so that we can encourage one another to to relate to God as we should. But not in the way that, that is described here where parents and children. You don't want a mother figure for a husband. He doesn't need a, a second mommy to, to help him remember to, to learn his scriptures. And not, my mom didn't sound like that, but I'm just saying you, you don't want him to respond. That's, a, that's, a, that's messed up. That's a confused human and a, and a broken set of, setup of, of relationships because he's supposed to be the head and she's, you know, that's, she's supposed to influence him, but she's not supposed to take a, a, like a motherly role. Same with a husband to his wife. He's not her father. You know, that's, that's fundamentally disordered. That's no, no, that's not the relationship in the second institution of marriage. One man, one woman in marriage, God's design for the human race. That's not, that's not the way it works. So this is a unique deal that parents are hand over hand, if you will, training their children to respond to God. And I get it again from verse 6. Fathers do not, or verse 4, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but instead bring them up, elevate them, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the New American Standard Translation. There are lots of ways these two nouns are brought up in English, but I want to focus on those nouns. I think they're really cool and really helpful. Discipline and instruction. When you hear, when I, when I was a kid, if I heard discipline, that was a spanking. I'm receiving discipline now. Well, that's not what the word means. In fact, the other word instruction, as in Greek that Paul uses, would probably be where the spankings are in the verse. There are. It's in Proverbs and Hebrews 
there is the corporal side of things, but it's all for a purpose. It's not for revenge. It's not, oh, you did this, I'm going to get him back. Or she, she said this, and she's going to get it. That's not the motivation. But we get into the trenches of things, and we, get, we forget the, the mission. We, we stop being the adult at some point, and that's not, that's not healthy at all. So you've got to keep your eyes on the prize. What's the mission? Well, the first word, discipline, is paideia, P-A-I-D-E-I-A, paideia. Paideia is the kind of instruction you would give to a paideon. There's two nouns floating around in Greek that really help you. Paideia is grammar school instruction because a paideon is a prepubescent child. Does that help? So the word that's translated here, discipline, means the kind of training necessary for a prepubescent child. And that's kind of the break on the Pideon versus other, other uh, nouns. The Pideon is the kid in training as a little child. And that's what you have to do. You have to elevate them, bring them up, rear them, uh, which is used for growing uh, plants sometimes. In the Pideon, the training or the instruction, the educational instruction for a prepubescent child in the Pideon, and the Nuthesia. Nuthesia is this word, instruction. Well, I don't think instruction is the best translation because instruction is too broad. This word means correction. Nuthesia is the corrective training that counsels avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. And I'm quoting Bauer, Donker, Arn, Gingrich's lexicon on this. That's a, that's a quote of, of the lexicon of record that is probably the best scholarly Greek, Greek lexicon for the Koine Greek. Nuthesia is corrective training that counsels avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. You're off the path, we're going back on the path, that kind of training. And that's necessary. Now notice, I'm not teaching them to bowl in this case with the, with the little runners up, with little, little fences. No. They got off the path, okay, we, we've got to have a correction, we're getting back on the path. Like that guy that drives, that drives you nuts when he's driving. He's all over the road. He's always making corrections. Just, just look, at the, look, look straight ahead and make, make little corrections. Don't do this jerking around on the road. This, this is as the child makes the wrong, starts to make the wrong move, you have to bring a correction that brings them back. That's what nuthesia is. And it's a really interesting word. It's a difficult word for us. We're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that one way we love people is correcting them, those that are out of line. And it's this word, nutheteo. Um, uh, Jay Adams is famous as the, the, the theoretician and pioneer of what they call nuthetic counseling. He coined this phrase as a Bible student. Nuthetic counseling is when someone comes to you with mental problems and you point out for them, you help them point out where their sins have taken them off the path. You're correcting them. And that's what the assumption is. There's something wrong with you. Um, morally, there's a moral problem behind what you're experiencing. And so the nuthetic, or what that's also been called, I think it's called biblical counseling, some people have said. But, but the nuthetic movement is based on this word, that there's a correction. Now, I use that as an illustration. I'm not uh, I don't carry any brief for Jay Adams. Um, some of the things he said are very helpful, and I think, uh, like everything, you can overdo it. But correction is definitely in view, and it's in, of the Lord. It's theocentric. It's focused on God. Training and correction would be my glosses. 
for these two words, training for a young child and correction necessary to a young child. And notice that it kind of emphasizes the younger years, the early years, when Pideon is, when, when it'd be appropriate to hand over hand train a child. Try to give a first grade lesson to a sixth grader. That is not going to be well received, right? And sometimes you have to, I guess, but you don't want to. You want to get those first grade lessons learned and, and advance and develop. So training and correction. But it's of the Lord, the training and correction of the Lord. And that's the part that it's theocentric. It's focused on God. That's what the kids need. And that's what moms and dads need to be doing. And I think this specifies the, the goal for Divine Institution 3 as far as the parents are concerned. My goal is not that they get through college. That's a, that's a subsidiary goal if they need to be college students. My goal is that they get a good trade so that they can make a living. I have that as a goal, but it's not the goal. The goal is that they relate to God properly in their choices. And that doesn't mean they don't do this list of things. Well, they don't do that list of things, but it's because of a relationship with God. My goal isn't that they marry well, although they have to marry well to accomplish my goal if they're going to marry. They have to do it wisely and righteously or or there's going to be a derailment. And so thinking about the goal is really important. Their relationship with God, that's what we're after. So the goal is charted. We are to equip our children to make good decisions for God's sake. That's the training and that's the correction of the Lord. We are to equip our children to make good decisions for God's sake. Now you could say that a different way. We're uh, to equip our children to make good decisions for God's sake. And that's a little bit different. The way, uh, <laughs> But that's how a lot of people, Amer- Christians, will feel in America. What do you think you're doing raising your kids? Oh, well, we're, I mean, they play their games. They're busy, and I have a little bit of peace. Well, great in the moment, but what are you actually doing? What, what, are, you, what are you doing with your life? What's your mission? How does what you're choosing now line up with your objectives long-term that God has given you. Ephesians 6.4 does not tell us how to do it. He doesn't tell you how many whips to whip, how many spanks to offer if you're going to give spankings. The Bible doesn't ever do that. You have to come talk to Pastor Dave. I'll give you a little class on that. No, no, I I don't know from the Scriptures that either. I know that if I'm going to discipline a child, one of my children, it is the goal is their attitude, not their behavior. It's not just what you're doing, it's why. That's the, it's, if you're just doing behavior, you're forgetting that the person is a human being made in God's image. There's an attitude issue. Just the one a little hint. But, but 6.4 doesn't tell you how to do it. It tells you what is the objective. God does this with us. He says, here's your aim. Go be creative. Go, go read what else I've said. Think like I think about things. And understand how from what I've said and your own ingenuity, your walk by the Spirit, how to do the things that I've told you. He tells us what, it tells us what we're doing. My example of this, my illustration is the Good News Club thing. Bible doesn't say go in the public school. Why do we do it? Well, common sense. God says go make disciples. Of who? Of all the nations. Well, they're all here. <laughs> so let's go where we can and do that within the structures that we, we have. I can do it there. I can do it there more effectively, probably in this culture, than any other place. So 
I think that's a really important thing to notice is that there's always room for wisdom. There's always the obligation of common sense when God tells you what he wants you to do. Equipping our children to serve God through training and correction summarizes the very best we have to give them. Some parents think that if they give their children property, possessions, money, uh, ease, that that's the good thing. It's the big hug, and they know I love them because I give them things. But it's not. You know the old thing about a fish versus a fishing rod. The, the goal is that the child responds to God, and that's where the riches are. And you can't give them that. You can't give them the fruits of that. They have to grow into that. So you, you, you spend your, your treasure and your resources in that objective. The very and high, highest and best. It's like cutting a check to solve the parent problem in our culture, the, the fatherlessness that causes, you know, it's, it's hand in hand with so many of the problems throughout our civilization and all the cultural rot. It's, it's largely the father's not present. You know, the numbers are off the charts. I'm going to show you some of those numbers today. Maybe we'll do that sometime. Um, we're going to, well, you know, poverty happens because of fatherlessness in part. Dads are gone. They're deadbeats. They don't they don't stay for the family, so the government cuts a check to take care of the widows and, or- the widows and orphans, right? So what would be better, a government check where they have a little bit more food than they would if dad was home and he was working and, and, and being there with them, or the father's presence to train and equip his children? Which one would be more valuable, infinitely more valuable that they had the father present, that he was the man he was supposed to be? And so... Um, just an illustration of why this is the greatest thing we have. In Proverbs 1.8, just as we close down, um, Solomon tells you that he's writing this folio. Uh, he's dedicating it to the training of his sons. These are David, King David the Great, David's grandsons. Very often Solomon will refer to his father and his father's training. That would be David training him to be the king. Proverbs 1.8 says, Hear, my son, the training of your father, Musar, training. Your Bible translates perhaps instruction. I'm going to hold that word instruction uh, for another synonym. But this is poetry, and you rhyme in Hebrew poetry and thought. Hear, my son, the training of your father. Notice it's a command. Dad issues the command to listen, Shema, and therefore take it in, and therefore hold it and obey it. Shema, hear. The, instruct, the training of your father. And do not uh, natash, a word to leave a field untended. The word neglect is probably the best English word for this. could also be translated forsake, right? Forsake where you're intentionally leaving it. But I think neglect is better because it catches more instances. I'm not just intentionally abandoning something. I'm really just not tending it as I need to. It's neglect. And do not neglect the Torah, Torah of Imma, of your mother. Actually, it's Imeka. Imma is mother, and Imeka is your mother. But this word here that my Bible translated, I forget how it translated it in the New American Standards. It called it uh, the t- your mother's teaching. It's the word Torah. doesn't mean that she's issuing the, the new Ten Commandments. It means that when we call God's law Torah, we're calling it God's instruction. 
And that's what this word always means. It always means instruction. Now, what do you get here? You get the team, mom and dad working together. They're synonymous. Mother and father in the parallelism are synonymous. They're a team. And they both have this authority. And the kid needs to listen and internalize it and absorb it. Now I will now preach against pop music. (laughs) Now, but think about this with me. The music industry, Christian contemporary and, um, and its parent uh, thing, pop culture music, that is a product of a capitalistic process where we've been giving a certain market what they want so that they'll buy and, and reward and we keep giving them more what they want. And it just turns out that that market has always been since the 40s in, the, in this country, it's always been children. And it seems like an obvious thing. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And they loved it. And they danced to it. And it was fun. It was energetic. And it's, it's I mean, yeah, we like Beethoven and Mendelssohn and all this other stuff. But Duke... I, I want to hear Count Basie. I want to hear, and that's where it started. And I, I love that stuff. I love, I love American music. But here's what happens. Music is more powerful than we ever thought. There are 150 psalms in the Psalter. Music is more powerful than we thought. There's a reason it was so attractive, and it is so attractive. And what happened was, we said, yeah, obviously give it to them. They love it, and it's fun, and, and they want it, and why not? And eventually, we said, uh, we're tired of that sound, and we've got to edge it. We've got to push. We've got to, we've got to keep morphing it. It has to keep edging. And I, I, I'm not saying that the whole metamorphosis of American music from uh, the swing, you know, induction of jazz into mainstream became, you know, naturally because of sin, what it is, what we have in pop. I'm not saying that it's just sin and, and the devil and rock and roll. What I'm saying is the power of music and the embrace by one generation of music that it wasn't embraced by the previous generation meant that you had a generational break. Now that's always been true. The Old Testament ends on Malachi saying that the Messiah will restore the hearts of sons of their fathers and fathers of their sons. There's always been a problem between generations. The closer you are to someone, the worse your sin nature is rubbing up against theirs and there are problems, there are resentments, there are horrors, even in good circumstances between parents and children. And now what was already because of sin, a break, was now a cultural uh, tectonic shift where you had now two different continents. You had the old people and the young people. And this is my generation and this is our music. And you separated culturally the young from the old in a powerful medium. And you're like, well, music doesn't. No, music is powerful. It's defining for the, it's the heartbeat, if you will, of, of the culture. And that balkanized our civilization. What it was before in Proverbs was children, listen to your parents. They have wisdom to give you. And, and do it before you know you need to. Just listen. It's commanding it. I, at 25, I know I need to listen because I've, I've had a bloody nose enough times. I've got to listen to some wisdom. But know it as a kid when you're little. Nope. 
I've got something else in my ear. I've got something else. This is my group. I'm looking horizontally. I'm not looking vertically. And this is going on 3,000 years ago. Did you know that? Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the, the first recipient of this instruction, the son that it's dedicated to, the crown prince for Solomon, <laughs> is the worst fool in the Bible because he has all the wisdom of his father in this repository. He has the training of Solomon. Now, Solomon's a horrible example in part of his life, so, so you see the mixed benefit of Solomon as your dad. But he listens to his generation instead of listening to the elders. And what that causes is that he loses the entire kingdom except for two tribes. That's the story of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the division of the kingdom. And yes, it was God judging the household of David for Solomon's idolatry. But the way he did it was through Rehoboam's foolishness by listening to his peers instead of listening to his elders. The, the elders, they said, you ta- your dad taxes too much, you need to back off, which is always the answer. <laughs> Biblically, yes, less taxes. You ta- your dad taxes too much, do, do less. And Solomon talked to his friends and they said, what you really need is to tax them more. And more on, he listened to his, to his peers and lost the kingdom. And it's, it's ridiculous and tragic, and it's an example. What I'm trying to show you just by honing in on Proverbs 1.8, we don't spend time looking at Proverbs 1.8. You read it as you're reading through. But I just want you to notice that mom and dad are a team, and it's supposed to be a deposit of multi-generational wealth that you are commanding your children to benefit from. And that's the expectation. No, I know you have your friends, and I know they have their perspective, but you need to be able to speak truth into that, and so you listen to what I have to tell you. Daniel and his buddies were able to withstand the immersion into a pagan culture in Daniel 1 through 6 because apparently they had been taught well by their parents. They had their father's... uh, training in their mother's Torah. They had the instruction that they needed. And so they knew we don't eat that food. And so God blessed them. They said, we don't bow down to that idol. And then God preserved them. And, and that is only possible if you take Proverbs 1.8 and other things like it seriously. Here, my son, the training of your father, do not neglect the instruction of your mother. It seems so obvious, so simple. If we have humility, we're wise to say, I don't really have anything to say. They shouldn't listen to me. Who am I? You need to start with that. And then you need to stop being that way and start thinking God's thoughts and say, no, no, I have a relationship with him. I have his word. I've walked with him all this time. He's built me into this person that I can can speak the truth into this, and I need to take that, that role. I need to take that mantle. You better have something to give them. You better be the person that should be listened to. You better know what the truth is. It better not be, well, this is what my mom said. Or this, this is how we do it. And it better be this is what God wants because we're training them in the instruction, the discipline, and the correction of the Lord. Our Father, we love you and bless you and praise you for this time. We've enjoyed thinking about uh, responsibilities and your design of parents. And Father, we, uh, we live in difficult times, but that's always been the case. The challenge before us today is what do we do with a civilization that has delegated the sacred task of training children to serve you to a, a, a culture that is completely committed not to trust you. Father, we, we aren't here to build or bring the kingdom. We're here to recruit those who will rule with Christ in it. Help us spot the deception and tell the truth in love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.